to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 14th of November 2010, entitled Church Unity and Biblical Separation. Here's Brother Romani Farmi. It feels really weird being up here. Um, and looking at the title, probably I should have chosen a much simpler project. <laughs> you know but um, God has laid it on my heart to actually um, talk about this topic. Um, it's a very complex and involved project, um, but the outcomes is very beneficial to us as Christians because we can actually decipher whether we can have fellowship with a certain Christian group or not. Um, so basically what I'm trying to address um, in this presentation is what is the minimum level of fellowship we can have with other Christians, no matter if it's um, Methodist or Protestant or evangelist, it's, we have to find a common ground. And this is what I'm trying to um, uh, present on it. Um, I don't know how to give a sermon. I really don't know, but I'm more used to either lecturing or giving um, like Bible study. So consider this either as a lecture or a very big Bible study. <laughs> the key authors in this um, topic are basically two people. Um, our very own Pastor Larry Curtis. He's gone through very um, detailed sermons on uh, biblical doctrines and fundamentals. And they're probably the best I've ever actually ever seen. They're almost 40 hours worth, 50 hours worth. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but they're very, they're very uh, important because we as Christians have to know what we stand on for the fundamentals of our faith. So when someone comes along with new doctrine, it's up to us to, to actually say, to, to assess whether they're part of our faith or not. Uh, most of his sermons can be downloaded on the iTunes. The other guy is a guy called Kevin Bowder, who's a, um, a lecturer and a um, president of a Bible college in America. And he's basically one of the experts of um, biblical separation within the field kind of thing. And most of his sermons can also be downloaded from the internet. And based on these two, eighty percent of my material comes from these two people. So it's it's not so much about who came up with what, but it's what actually what makes sense. If you see what I mean, because other day, his wisdom. Um, Kevin Bowder's wisdom, it all comes from God. So God gets the glory at the end of it. And God puts the ideas into these people's heads so we can listen to it so God can be glorified. So credit goes to God, first of all. But we have an important role as Christians to know our Bibles really, really well. Because if someone comes up and starts preaching something completely different to the faith, we, we as Christians have to stand up and say, what you're teaching is wrong. So we have to challenge everything that we hear and all the new teachings that come around. Um, <laughs> biblical separation is very complex. 
is very, very, very complex. And we need to understand what, what each person believes, what we have in common, and what we differ on. And based on that, we can make a judgment of whether they're a brother or not. Okay, the drive. What made me choose this topic? <laughs> Over the last one year, I've noticed, like most of you know that I work in my brother-in-law's shop on Saturdays. And sometimes I usually take my Bible, because it's not busy, so I'll just open a chapter, give it a read. And it's amazing how many people just comment on it, like, oh, you're reading the Bible, not many people do that anymore. Or some other people come along and say, is that the Quran? And I'm like, mm. But based on what people, if people are interested in making conversation with you, you, give, you make a conversation back with them. The problem is there's a lot of people which I thought were Christians who are not really Christians. I'm thinking especially of one um, old woman. She knew how to talk Christian. Uh, she knew her Bible well. She gave the history of the Bible and so forth. But when it came down to fundamentals, she didn't agree with what I believed. I said, to, we were talking about the deity of Christ, about Jesus is God. And she kept on saying, well, he's, he did pay for our sins and we are saved by him. But he is not God. He is the son of God. I'm like, it's the same thing. Son of God, God, same thing. He's like, no, there's a difference. Straight away, I knew there was division there. The second topic, the second reason why I actually chose this, um, uh, this topic is based in my company. They, we have like an infonet news. It's based like a newspaper of the company. And it basically gave more or less this statement. It says, religious groups come together to pray for world peace and unity. You really can't do that. You can't have a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist all in the same room praying together. It's no good one person praying to Christ, another person praying to Muhammad, another person praying to Buddha. There's no unity there. The last one is the most funniest one, The Simpsons. I saw one episode of The Simpsons where they were dealing with Christianity as a whole. And there was war between the Catholics against the Protestants, against the evangelical churches. And Homer had this vision of a heaven, a separate heaven for each of these religious groups. So there was a heaven for Catholics, a heaven for um, Protestants. And I'm like, this is not true. You see, what I mean? there's only one heaven, and whoever believes on Jesus will go to that heaven. So this is the drives which actually pushed me to preach this topic. The idea of separation is a, uh, has a lot, there's a lot of ideas going around of what separation is. Uh, and I've just basically done like a brainstorm of what uh, ideas of separation exist on. There's one idea where it says God in his nature is a separatist. He says, you know, we just opened the book of the first chapter of Genesis. God separated the land from the sea. He separated man from woman. He separated light from darkness. He separated the nation of Israel from, from all the other nations. God in his nature is a separatist. 
I don't like putting God in a box. I don't, because he, he's, not, he's not human, okay? He's, he's divine. We can't, class, we can't say he has the same hatred as us or the same love as us. Like, even if you open my Bible right now, when he talks about love, automatically where, where love is related to God, he puts down divine love. It's, a, it's different altogether. There's another idea where we say we, have to, we as Christians have to be separated from the world because the world has a mindset against uh, God, therefore we have to separate from it. And then we have another group of people like the Amish who are basically Baptists but extreme Baptists. They just live in the middle of nowhere. They, they basically uh, don't bother with technology. They don't associate with people. They don't preach. They live in a closed community away from everyone. So there's so many different topics with it. And some of them are true, some are not true. But we need to actually define what is biblical separation. So our first biblical text is Exodus chapter 19, verse 3 to 8, and Exodus chapter 32, 19 to 29. Okay, Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 8. And Moses went up unto God, and Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a, pe- a peculiar treasure unto me, above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people, and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. Now, if we go to Exodus chapter 32... And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand and broke them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they made and burned it into fire, and ground it to powder, and strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, "What What did this people unto thee? What did these people unto thee that thou hast brought so great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger, anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, this, the man that has brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we won't know what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave them. It to me, then I cast it onto the fire, and there came out of the calf. And when Moses saw the people, they were, and when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among the enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me, and all the sons of Levi gather, gather, gather themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus the Lord God of Israel put every Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put every man his sword by his side and go in and out of the camp 
so and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. Now, reading these two verses, we can make some conclusions. We can do some observations as well. We know that the children of Israel were in Egypt, and they saw all of God's wonder. Yeah? And they all went to the Sinai, and they all heard God spoke. And God gave them the commandments in the, pre, in the first chapter, and all of them agreed to the commandments of the Lord. Yeah? But then what happened? They made a calf. They started doing uh, idol worshipping. And there was separation involved. Because most of them separated the people, those who wanted to follow God, and those who just wanted to do their own things, those were slain. Now... This is very interesting. Because the children of Israel were with the Egyptians for a long time, they took a lot of the Egyptian ideas. They took the ideas of worshipping other gods, multiple gods, uh, in, in forms of animals and so forth. And then when they came to know God, they tried to adopt these mentalities, these pagan ideas, into the one true God's true faith. So basically what you can actually say is that they were implementing their own doctrines to God's teachings. So I've put down here, the people might as well said, our God is as strong as a calf and as pure as gold. And that led righteous people to be led away from the truth. An example of this is Aaron, the high priest. And then separation occurred. So if we go into modern day Christianity under the umbrella of Christianity, you can just look at such diverse beliefs within Christianity alone. The danger that we actually have is anyone who comes to the Christian faith and looks at all these different denominations are they going to say that this Christian faith is united together or they are divided together? They're going to say they're divided together. So we're not really portraying what the unity... If you remember uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus was praying to his Father that the, that, that, that the disciples may be one as they are one. We're not doing this here. And what's actually separating us from, all, from, from each other? It's doctrine. And doctrine is supposed to divide because you can either agree on the truth or nothing at all. So looking at these, we have a number of questions we have to ask ourselves. The first question is, are these all Christians? It comes down to what you define as Christian. Because the, the, the meaning Christian is basically uh, Christ-likeness or mini-Christ. But that doesn't tell us about doctrine. So the term Christianity is very loose and general altogether. Can we have fellowship with these other Christian groups? 
this is a very complex question. And what we'll propose later on is that depending on their teachings and what they agree to be fundamental or not, will determine the level of fellowship that we can have with these Christian groups. How do we differentiate between them? Doctrine. If so, how much? And how does our line of thought fit in? Basically, what we have to ask ourselves is what do we deem to be fundamental and what not to be fundamental? Is uh, covering of women's hair, is that fundamental to the faith? Is the virgin birth fundamental to the faith? There's a whole list of questions we have to ask ourselves, and it's, and it's up to us to determine whether, whether which, which doctrine is, is fundamental or not. When I was writing this, I was probably, yeah, the ancient monks had it right. Get away from everyone, let's go up to the mountain, don't bother with anything whatsoever. But then I'll start answering my own thoughts. Uh, it's not biblical. A monk is not biblical. You don't find anywhere in the Old Testament where people just basically run to a mountain, spend 50 years there, and just shut themselves away from everyone. It doesn't happen. You become an ineffective uh, a witness for Christ. And according to the ends of like, uh, the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, we are supposed to be the light of the world. We are supposed to be uh, preachers of the word. We're supposed to evangelize everyone that we come across. So being a monk is not technically correct. Okay. So I thought, how could we tackle all these ideas? So I started looking into the different types of churches which, which exist. And basically, I've come down to three types of churches. One is called the Episcopal Church. Now, the Episcopal Church is basically the view which is held in uh, the Catholics and the Orthodox, where they say that the church compromises mainly of the bishops and the elected pope. And based on these people, they will direct the church as it goes forward. And the people have nothing to do with it. So you can consider it as a big company where you have the managing directors and the board of directors. They make all the decisions and we just have to stick with it. The issue that we have with this, like if you take the Catholic Church for instance, the Catholic Church today is not the same Catholic Church it was 100 years ago. And even if you look at the Catholic Church 100 years ago, it wasn't the same over 1,000 years ago because they keep on changing based upon what the bishops and the Pope believe in. The other sort of church is called the ecumenical movement, where they basically say is that forget doctrine, whoever names the name of Christ, he should be considered as a Christian. Forget everything else. Yeah. The, the one that we stand as fundamental independent Baptist Christians is the evangelical church, where we say that the Bible is the sole authority of our way of life, okay? We believe that the doctrines in the church, in, in the Bible, should lead on how the church is moved towards the 21st century and so forth. So it comes very important 
the Bible is very important for the makeup of the church. And the people of the church have a say within the church itself. Like, otherwise I wouldn't be here. <laughs> See what I mean? So, but what, the good thing about the evangelical church, it actually teaches us, each person who attends the evangelical church, in theory, should be a theologian. Because we probably know our, our Bibles better than any other sort of, church, any sort of church from the Episcopal Church or the Ecumenical Church. So we are basically theologians in our own right, so to speak. Okay. Before we actually read this verse of text, we need to recap, recap on what the Corinthian church is, because this is probably the most best example for the New Testament church of separation. Again, with the Corinthian church, they came from a pagan background. And of course, Paul and other people uh, evangelized to them, and they believed, and they came into the church. But they brought along with their pagan ideas. And if you, if you know the book of Corinthians very well, they were disputing over silly things to major things. Like some of them were saying that, oh, you came from, um, you're a follower of Paul, meanwhile I'm a follower of Apollos. Very superficial things. Then he came into more important doctrines, like was there really a resurrection? So there were so many separation, uh, separation ideas within that church alone. So there was a mix of doctrines. And basically, Paul tried to um, disciple them as best as he can in terms of his letters. So if we just read the first Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, which is the key separation verse. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, but underline the next words. It says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or the extortioners or with idolaters, for then must you need to go out into the world. Very complex verse, because Paul is basically saying is that keep away from people who are basically bad in terms of their, their actions or their doctrines or whatever, but don't separate to the point where you cannot even preach the gospel to them or, or even have a discussion on fundamentals with them. So that's basically the key biblical separation verse that we always need to consider when dealing with other Christian dominations. So what is biblical separation? In order to define separation, we, we need to define what unity is. The problem is many people can't agree on unity. They can't define what unity is in terms of Christian. People will say that unless you use our King James Version Bible, we cannot have fellowship. Or if you use our NIV Bible, we cannot have fellowship. These are not the basis for unity. It might be important, but it's not the fundamental bottom line of Christian unity. So there's so much division in terms of the actual explanation of unity, what it is kind of thing. So at this point, I had a coffee. And so let's leave it for a second. And I tried to understand what unity is. And of course, like Malcolm is a mechanical engineer, he's probably studied a little bit of this. This is basically a, a electrical engineering. Basically, if I take an, a, 
a device called the oscilloscope, I connect into that plug right there, I will get two waveforms, okay? One will be current and one will be voltage, yeah? You can see that they have very similar characteristics, but they're separated together like that. They're phase shifted. And we call this lagging power factor. Now, if I take my oscilloscope and connect it somewhere else, I'll get a perfect waveform. That means the current and the voltage are in perfect agreement together. They overlay one another. And, they, and that is called unity power factor. Okay? So let's draw some ideas from this. Unity is a function of that which unites. Which basically means two things which are in agreement or have the same characteristics. For example, two meat eaters and one vegetarian. What do I mean by this? If I eat meat, and say if Chris eats meat, we can talk about meat all day. We love talking about how to cook meat, how to eat it, and so forth. But then if you bring a vegetarian with us into the conversation, she's not going, she, he or she, <laughs> gotta be careful though, he or she would not have the same unity that me and Chris have on the topic of meat. We, she's going to start a conversation with saying meat is wrong, you shouldn't do this, the animal has rights, blah, 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 blah. We're not going to have agreement together. So unity is basically fellowship. Okay? But the problem is, uni you can have unity on anything. You can have unity on your favorite football team, your favorite TV show, the car that you drive, to the holiday that you go on. But these are not Christian unity. Okay? It's not Christian unity. If, if say, half of you support the Conservative Party and the other half of you uh, support the Labour Party. That's not Christian or not. There's no, it has nothing to do with Christianity. This is just your preference on political ideas. So we have to be careful on what um, we define as Christian unity. And here are some of the ideas of Christian unity. As I said before, people have different preferences on Bible version. Me, personally, I like the King James Version Bible because it's more, uh, it's more rich in language. It's more closer to the um, original text. But if I wanted to be even more explicit, I would have to go back to the Greek. Okay? There's other people who say, no, the, I don't understand the King James. I prefer the NIV. Very simple words. Okay, fine. Some people say that we can only have unity if you attend every... Um, activity that church carries out. It's good, but everyone's circumstances are different. We can go through a whole list and to, to actually discern whether, if it is the principle or the basis for Christian unity. After looking at all this, I was a bit hesitant. We need to define what Christian unity is based on. And why came, you might agree with me or not, that Christian unity is the gospel according to the word of God. This is what brings people together. Okay, this is what saves people together. Okay, we might have different ideas and so forth, but this is what God wants us to unite on. It is the gospel according to the word of God. So what I've tried to do 
is draw a picture of a very bad artist. What we have is circles within circles, where we say that in order to enter the Christian circle, you must believe the gospel. If you're inside the circle, we can have minimum fellowship. If you're outside the circle, you're either a Buddhist or an evolutionist or a Muslim or whatever. But once we get into that circle, the gospel itself is also very complex because the gospel is doctrine. If you, like the gospel is basically the death, burial, and resurrection. If you say that you have no sin, you are basically denying the gospel. If you say that Jesus was not born of a virgin, you are basically denying the gospel because everything is all interlinked together. So the more things that you agree on, the better your fellowship is. Meanwhile, the more things you agree, the more things you agree on, the better fellowship you get until you get to the center where Jesus, if, if, you, if, you, be, if you open your Bible to John chapter 17, Verse 20, I think it's only the first three paragraphs. Once you get to the center, this is the exact position where Jesus wanted us to be. He says, neither pray I for these alone. So he's talking to the um, uh, disciples, but not the disciples only, but for every believer who believes on the gospel. But for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one as thou, Father, are in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. That is the center. Okay? That center is that verse right there. Now, we as Christians of... We Christians are very difficult people sometimes because we kind of like judge a book by its cover. We will encounter a, I don't know, a Protestant, and will automatically think that this person is un, uh, has, he's not Christian because he goes to a Protestant church. We do the same things with the Catholics. We do the same thing with the Methodists. We do with every single Christian that we deal with. We have like a, a, a Christian checklist. Does he go to the right church? Does he use the right Bible? Does he do this? Does he do that? Does he do this? We have to be very careful if we do that because we're generalizing. If you open the Bible in Ezekiel chapter 36, he's, the, Ezekiel is basically speaking to God, and God is telling him that, that he will put a new heart into his new, into his new people, and he'll write the laws upon his hearts, and he will pour out, pour out his spirit onto them. Because the, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, inside of us we can't actually know who has Holy Spirit or who, who, who doesn't. We can't exactly, I don't know, um, get an amp meter and measure if you have the Holy Spirit, or we can't put a pink dye in you and see if you have the Holy Spirit, or we can't use litmus paper. We can't do any of this. We can't open someone's heart and to assess whether the person is a Christian or not. But we can make a, a judgment on what they say and do to an extent. Because if you encounter someone who's blind, deaf, and dumb, which is very rarely, but if you do, how would you know that person's a Christian? You wouldn't know. So it's God who actually knows who's, who, who, the, who the person is or not. Okay, God only knows. And 
So we're getting to all these problems here. And the reason why I'm saying this, probably most of you don't agree with me, but my reason for saying this is the scriptures which I've put down here, John chapter 5, verse 18, chapter 7, verse 1. Let's just choose one of them, for, for instance. Um, John chapter 5, the Gospel of John. Okay, so let's start from verse 17. It says, But Jesus answered them and said, My, further, my father worketh, worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because, not, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, make himself equal with God. Now my question to you is, who are the Jews in this case? Is it the nation of Israel, or is it the uh, establishment, the Pharisees or Sadducees? Well, it's not the, the, the nation of Israel as a whole. It's the establishment. It's Pharisees and Sadducees because these are the people who want to get rid of Jesus. The Jews were more than happy to listen to what Jesus was saying. But, of course, the higher powers, which is the, the, um, the priests in the temple and so forth, wanted to get rid of him. And, and I put down here, cast out the synagogue. The book of John, the Gospel of John, is written, I would say, very Jewishly because you need to understand what to be cast out of the synagogue actually means. What it, it's basically saying that your father and mother is basically kicking you out. That's why it actually means to a, a Jew when they say to be cast out of the synagogue. It's basically cut off from all the community. Okay. So we got to the point of it is the gospel according to the word of God which unites us. Now, the problem is when we open um, the New Testament, like in terms of Romans, Corinthians, and uh, Thessalonica, and all this sort of stuff, we find that there was more than one gospel going around at that time. So we need to have a clear definition of what the gospel actually means. Because there were so many gospels going around at that time, even today, there's more than one gospel going around. And an example of this is called the social gospel. I've taken this from Wikipedia. I don't trust Wikipedia. But in this case, I was more than happy to use it because it gave a clear definition of what the social gospel was. Basically, the social gospel was, um, in the 19th century, a lot of the, um, the uh, Protestants and the evangelicals all agreed that the gospel was a message of salvation from sin. They all agreed that. But after that, a lot of theologians from America, from England, from Europe, started to look around the world and said, there's a lot of issues with modern day society. There's a problem with crime, divorce, racism, and so forth. We need a gospel to actually tackle this sort of problem. So they came up with something called the social gospel, where they started to de-emphasize the, the message of salvation and started to address, like, if you come to church, Maybe we can help you sort this problem out. People come to the church for the wrong reasons. Okay? And, of course, big players in this were a guy called Walter, how can I say that name? Rushenbush, von Kettler, and Martin Luther King. Everyone knows Martin Luther King. So the next big question is, what is the gospel? When in the Bible can we get an exact definition of the gospel? Any ideas? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
He begins off saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, but which also you are saved, if you keep in memory what I preach unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for, for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures." And was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve and so forth. So, that is a clear definition of what the gospel is. Uh, gospel is. It is the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. But it's also, what's also important is that these are actually true life events. So if I had a time machine and set the clock back 2010 years ago, I would actually witness this happen. It is true life um, um, events. It happened in space and time. It is essential because because we know that without the remission of sins, without, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So there had to be a sacrifice taking place, a real sacrifice, not a hypothetical or an imaginary sacrifice, a real sacrifice in order to uh, appease God's righteousness. It's a historical account. So, death. The death, burial, and resurrection are all evidence. That's the thing you need to bear in mind. They're all evidence. The death, it says, the wage of sin is death. Crucifixion. How do we know that Jesus died? Well, we have historians like Josephus who actually wrote down the accounts of that Jesus was actually hung on a tree. Even the Bible itself, it's also a... Um, it's a witness at the same time, because if you remember the account of Jesus hanging on the cross, there was a, Roma, a Roman centurion, and he had a spear. And what did he do with the spear? He thrust into his heart. Now, if you go into um, Roman history, the reason why he actually done this is because there was a law at the time where if you've put someone onto the cross and he came out alive, you would have to take his place. So the Roman centurion had to make sure that Jesus was dead. Okay? So that's the first essence of, of evidence. The second part is the burial. A sinless God died for us. And like I said, the, without the shedding of blood, there's, um, there's no remission of sin. There was a lot of women at the time who tried to anoint the body of Jesus. If you remember the account... If you remember that um, Joseph of Arimathea, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. And the women tried to anoint the body on the Sabbath day, but they couldn't because it was Sabbath day. So they had to do it the following day. And that's when they encountered that the body was gone. So that's also another evidence. Women actually, you know, tr- uh, you know tried to bury the body. The resurrection, the evidence for the re- resurrection is that there was more than one eyewitness at different times, okay? There was, according to, to uh, chapter, chapter 15, there was more than 500 people who saw Jesus at different times. This, this is another witness to us that Jesus actually died, buried, and rose again, okay? So my next question is, what do all these people have in common? Jesus, Spartacus, Peter, Andrew, Joachim, Demar. Anyone has any ideas? 
All these people were crucified. Each and every single one of them, they were all crucified. Okay? So that leads me to the next question. What makes Jesus so different? Okay? And the answer actually comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So there was a justification behind it. He didn't die for, you know, just for the fun of it. He died for our sins. There's an explanation involved with the death. Okay? So the event plus the correct explanation. Because a lot of people will say that Jesus never really rose, um, rose again, you know, with a body, with a true body. He rose up in spirits. You're kind of like getting the wrong explanation. And if you have the wrong explanation, you will lead to the wrong doctrine. So the event plus the correct explanation leads to the doctrine which is according to the Bible. And I've put down here a whole a bunch of um, chapters of um, reasons of why we need to have the right doctrines. I will later come along to a spider web. And basically what I'm trying to say in the spider web is that each, uh, every spider web is unique because each length is a doctrine. If you break one doctrine, you break the whole thing. You need to have the correct explanation of doctrines throughout, and then it would be hold strong. If you remove one doctrine, the whole thing falls apart. Warning against false teachers. Um, let's just try to try to do this quickly. First uh, Corinthians chapter sixteen. The Bible you, you makes clear definitions of true explanations of the gospel. If you have the wrong explanation of the gospel, a lot of the apostles kind of like, you know, insulted you. Um, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Ma, ma, maranatha. Anathema is, is a word which is um, damned, for a long story short. It basically means, it actually means accursed, to be, you know, destroyed. So for apostle, who's a loving apostle, to actually say these words, he actually means that this is very, very serious. We have to have the right uh, explanation of doctrines. Um, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8 9. Let's actually start from verse 8. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you, you have received, let him be accursed. That word accursed is actually the same word in the previous version, which was anathema. And for emphasis, Paul is repeating it twice. So it's something very, very serious. And of course, with Second John chapter 1, verse 10, 11, he's actually saying that any person come unto you preaching another gospel, don't even allow him to come into your house. Okay? But Paul, Paul assumes a few things. Paul assumes that the gospel has been preached to these people and that they've believed. And Paul is basically trying to say that stay within your ground. Stay, know, your, know your doctrines well, know your Bible well, know your scriptures well. So anyone comes along, you can just basically dismiss them, kind of thing. 
So let's hear the conclusion of the matter. Separation goes hand in hand with church unity. Minimum Christian fellowship can only occur when someone believes the gospel and its theological teachings. This person becomes part of the invisible church. High levels of fellowship can occur when more and more teachings are held in common. It is not a command but a prayer. If we go back to John chapter 17, Jesus prays for it. He prays for it. If a cloud came over Jesus and says, this is my son, hear ye him, then it becomes a command. But it's not a command because he just prays for it. So it's up to us to actually um, assess whether unity can exist or not exist. We must strive for unity, but not at the expense of fundamental teachings or doctrines. And like I said, doctrines are spiderwebs. Like the woman, when she said to me that, that Jesus, he's not God, but the son of God, she's kind of like opposing different ideas to what the Bible is teaching. Because the first thing I said to her, she's actually breaking the first law of the commandments. Why is the first law of the commandments? Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. She's breaking that commandment. If she's saying that, G- that Jesus is the Son of God, and God, God and, and the Son of God are two separate people, she's breaking the first commandment. So doctrines are all held together. If you try to remove one of them, you, don't, you, don't, you have no basis to, to, to stand on. Mm-hmm.